All right. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining. This is episode number 17 of Masari Crypto's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis, aka 2-Bit Idiot, and uh, really excited to catch up with really one of the first people that I met in the industry, actually. Uh, I would argue, much to Crypto Bobby's chagrin, that this is the original Crypto Bobby. We used to call him Bitcoin Bobby uh, back when the, the industry was so small in, in late 2013. Um, but Bobby Cho is the COO at Cumberland Mining, uh, an arm of uh, DRW that handles all types of crypto investing activity from venture to OTC trading. Um, Bobby's been in the crypto OTC business uh, for just about as long as anybody, if not longer, uh, having started at the uh, Bitcoin uh, OTC desk at Second Market before it was the, the Genesis team and, and, and the DCG subsidiary, uh, Genesis Capital. So um, a lot to talk about with respect to the OTC markets. Uh, the, uh, the team at Cumberland also has a new uh, site uh, for, for trade execution uh, that they announced a couple of weeks ago, Maria. Yeah, so we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, and try to pierce the veil, uh, as it were, for, for what is one of the most frequently uh, asked questions and, and, and subject matters that I get from our daily newsletter is just what the hell is going on in, in, in the crypto markets uh, on the OTC side of things. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll start off, uh, Bobby, just help, help us understand a little bit more about Cumberland mm -hmm. and, and how you guys are positioned in the market. Sure. Um, it's an incredibly important, if not as well known, mm -hmm. uh, entity uh, given the, the client base. But, um, but, sure. but where are you now and, and what's the evolution been since you got there a couple mm -hmm. of years ago? Uh, so, as, as Ryan mentioned, Cumberland is the crypto asset arm of DRW. Um, DRW is a diversified principal trading firm. Cumberland is no different. We are a diversified crypto uh, principal trading firm, uh, so we trade across uh, a number of coins, um, trading with counterparties in, in a number of countries, and, uh, and really what kind of our, our, our bread and butter is providing um, institutional size OTC liquidity. So we, we deal with counterparties, more likely funds or entities in the space that are looking to trade uh, larger volumes and maybe what the exchanges are doing. And, um, and we use our balance sheet to capitalize on those opportunities and, and to warehouse risk at times. And when you say larger volumes and larger trade you know, block orders, um, help people understand just kind of the sure. magnitude of, of, of what the starting size mm -hmm. uh, of the block trade would be up to you know, some of the largest that you facilitated. So our minimum trade size is $100,000. Um, average trade sizes are well north of that, right? $100,000, I think the exchanges can, can kind of handle that type of volume, um, uh, pretty close to mid-price, um, but I think what people really come to us for are the trades that happen in the million dollars or ranges. And even further to that, um, so we trade across upwards of about 40 different coins, mm -hmm. and so the spectrum of, let's say you're a fund and you're looking to trade you know, uh, certain types of coins, well, you know, certain exchanges won't be able to offer that to you. Mm -hmm. Then there's the other uh, facet of it, which is like capital efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so when people trade with us, it's on a bilateral counterparty basis. So we don't hold anything in advance of anybody. And so we're able to engage in transactions and do a trade, and then it settles post-trade. Mm -hmm. So whereas on the reverse with exchanges, um, you have to hold your capital there in anticipation of a trade that you may end up doing. Whereas with us, you can put on a trade 24-7, the desk operates 24-7, um, across a number of different coins, mm -hmm. and then after the fact, that's when monies and, and, and things would change hands. And so I think the capital efficiency is something that people have been um, 
much more aware of these days than, than previous. Now, the, the OTC desks basically make uh, their money for filling and, and kind of trading around these asset prices that you see listed on the exchanges. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and the spreads that you can make are, are generally dictated by what would otherwise be slippage on, on exchange order books, right, for, for these, these large trades. I think spreads, you, you have to, it's basically like risk-adjusted prices, right? Mm -hmm. so, so what is a spread, right? It's, a, it's, it's, it's the, the, the price difference in terms of what you need to get, um, uh, I guess, compensated for from a risk perspective. So when the market is extremely volatile, well, spreads tend to widen out. Why? Because you have to incorporate for those types of um, market movements. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is um, just uh, general activity that is happening on our balance sheet or our portfolio. So as I mentioned before, in terms of warehousing risk, so people will come to us and they'd say, hey, well, you know, make me a market on $50 million of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine if we had bought $50 million of Bitcoin, well, we are now, you know, we, we, we have a lot of risk on at that point. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's at that point that we would start to, to maneuver our spreads to, to reflect that. Do you guys try to stay neutral or do you also take positions? Uh, we, we do take positions. So as, as a principal trading firm, we, we act on our own accord. Um, we have no shareholders, no investors, no clients. And so um, we're able to be uh, pretty flexible there. And, and really that, that allows us to capitalize on different opportunities that may happen in the space, um, aside from OTC flow, right? We are able to kind of act on our own accord. Yeah, and, and there's not, uh, I think it's, it's probably a split uh, between OTC desks that actually take principal risk and, and those that are just making the market and trying to stay as neutral as possible. I'd say those are more um, riskless principal or agency type of uh, mm -hmm. desks, and which would fall more into a brokerage model. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, definitely that has been emerging more and more, um, this, this idea of like a brokerage model. And so we will deal with brokers in the street as well. You mentioned something interesting, which is that the exchanges now might be able to process a hundred thousand dollar order. Let, let, let's use that as kind of lower bound, yep. uh, since that, that's your minimum trade. What type of uh, slippage would you expect on some of the major exchanges if you were just to place like a market buy order? Yeah. Um, for a hundred thousand dollars right now, I'd imagine maybe the the very largest might be able to absorb it without a massively punitive hit, but. Even still, that seems like uh, quite a bit, unless you're talking about maybe Bitcoin and Ether. So I probably, and I'll, I'll just talk in generalities, um, but I'd basically say that exchanges, yes, the order book slippage may be minimal, but you have to also uh, incorporate the taking fees associated with mm -hmm. acting on such an order, mm -hmm. right? So those fees can range anywhere from, let's call it five to 20 basis points, then you incorporate the slippage. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you trade OTC, it's just the spread and that's what that's the price you're going to trade at. Mm -hmm. and, and for that type of size of say $100,000, you're pretty much looking at, you know, um, it, it would be under 20 basis points in my opinion, uh, kind of across the street. You know, between the, the massive run up in 2017 and then the consolidation, uh, yeah. we, we know how well some of the OTC deaths did. Mm -hmm. It has gotten, even in the last six months, it seems to have gotten insanely uh, more competitive, mm. uh, jump trading, mm. uh, Kraken, uh, Circles had their desk for a while, Coinbase yeah. now offers. It feels like every single major exchange has a desk, mm. um, and in addition, some other legacy uh, uh, market makers like Jump or yeah. are entering the scene. Um, and that's just in the US, right? We, we haven't talked about like internationally. Um, is, is that offset by increased institutional interest? 
Um, or, or has everybody, you know, more recently been trying to compete over a smaller and smaller chunk of a, of a diminishing pie, at least in this bear market? I think part of it is, and, and we'll talk about Maria in a second, but I think part of it is driven by their exchange client demand and also our counterparty demand as well, right? So we don't build things in a silo. We take, uh, you know, feedback from our counterparties and we'll cater towards that spectrum of things. Um, I think exchanges are no different. My assumption is is that exchange clients said, well, look, like I want to be able to do larger sizes. And so we will, um, more often than not, interact with the agency desks of the exchanges to help facilitate liquidity for them. Because again, most, if not all, the exchanges that provide OTC services are doing it on an agent basis. Mm -hmm. um, they are not taking any principal risk, and mm -hmm. there would be a conflict of interest there. So they would then turn to us, and we would then deal with them to be able to provide them with our markets. But definitely, there have been there's been expansion of um, there's been expansion of people that have been providing markets. Mm -hmm. I actually think there hasn't been as much of an expansion of people taking principal risk related to providing markets, if that makes sense. So sure. there's been well, a bigger evolution of brokers, and there mm -hmm. has been of actual liquidity providers standing there ready to, to manage risk. That makes sense. Uh, and is that, at least in the US, uh, is that legally enforced? Or is this just kind of an internal um, compliance practice that in most of the US uh, exchanges have, have adopted so that they're agents versus principals? So um, they're not I trading against probably, their customers or there's, there's not that? Um, uh, that'd be my assumption, but I think the exchanges have always taken the stance that you know they're gonna act as agent and provide a marketplace for their clients to do so. Uh, I would imagine that if, if you were a client of an exchange, then you wouldn't want the exchange to also trade on their behalf. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and for those that are, are kind of new to trading, the, the, the agent model is basically just you take one side of the market, you match it with another, principal trading, you're actually infusing your own liquidity uh, and, and your own balance sheet in, into some of these trades to make the markets. Yeah, I think a big distinction is, is people are like, well, this is what your spread is and, and, and this is what you make, but that's all unrealized, right? We are, uh, we are incentivized to take on positions and manage risk day to day. And that doesn't mean, hey, we just took in a trade, we're gonna sell it outright. We, we try to be a little bit more thoughtful about the way that we trade and the way that we impact the market related to the positions that we're taking on. Mm -hmm. um, because look, anybody I think can just take on a position and sell it outright. We try to be much more thoughtful about the way that we're providing liquidity and, and hedging those, that exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think about uh, using derivatives mm -hmm. uh, to help hedge out some of that risk? Is, is the infrastructure there yet for it to really be worthwhile for a desk your size to, to maybe put on I think so. These positions? Uh, I think you can definitely put on hedges, um, but uh, in the reverse scenario where, you know, where it's not someone selling to you, but it's someone that wants to buy from you, most of the futures market won't cater to that because they're cash settled. Um, because you're actually, at, at expiry, you're not actually getting delivery of the coins, right? Mm -hmm. So at settlement, counterparty comes and says, hey, well, I bought this stuff, can you deliver it to me? Well, yes, you've hedged your exposure, but you actually have not sourced the underlying or have that ready for them. Um, but no, we, we use futures markets, um, uh, we use spot markets, um, and, and we try to trade as opportunistically across the board with all that stuff. And you know there are more and more exchanges coming online, like Erisex, like Back, and other other folks like that. Which we'll we'll see how things get adopted. How um, you know I, I feel like with some of the language out of China mm -hmm. uh, with respect to crypto in, in the last year and a half or so, um, with just the cooling and, and speculative mm -hmm. furor, it, it it seems like 
uh, activity seat uh, has, has migrated back to like Western mm -hmm. uh, markets, yeah. and in particular in the U.S. So, what what type of uh, kind of global volume yeah. do um, do you see in the OTC market? Maybe first of all versus um, exchanges. So, taking aside geography, just OTC versus on exchange true volumes. Um, as a percentage, and then, and then, what percentage of that is is you know U.S. versus yeah. the rest of the world versus Asia? Is is that diminished? So I'd say that uh, I don't have the hard numbers. I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to think that anybody has the actual numbers. Um, but what I will say is that OTC is always a fraction of exchange volume, right? And so if you really um, even in this market, I, I would I would imagine so. That's kind of the way I see things. Um, I actually would have thought that it was fifty. It was fifty-fifty. Would have been maybe my bad guess, it, if not slightly skewed towards OTC. It could be, but again, like if you start out with the sample set that you believe that all the exchange volume is actually true, I don't. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and so even the adjusted, like adjusted volumes that maybe you guys are doing in the data set, it's it's really hard to come up with that number because you're starting from a source that you don't know is actual mm -hmm. actually real. Um, but having said that. From a flow perspective, what I will say is that definitely here in the US, you see much more focus on the matrix, right? Bitcoin and mm -hmm. Ethereum and, and some other names. In Asia, what we've noticed is people tend to go further out the curve. Mm -hmm. They tend to go, um, I mean, we trade upwards of 40 coins. They tend to want to have liquidity in some of the more off the run names. Mm -hmm. um, maybe because they present higher beta or, or there may be better opportunity there. But that's a kind of the one dynamic that I saw, um, especially rolling out Marea, um, is that, well, we only listed, uh, I believe, what, 10, 10 pairs. Um, we'll list some more, but we've listed 10 pairs. And the feedback immediately was like, hey, like, this is great. Like, you got Bitcoin, Ethereum, you got you know, uh, Zcash and a few others. But we're really looking for X, Y, and Z. And we said, look, we'll get there. Um, uh, it'll just take a little bit of time. Now, uh, there, there's an interesting uh, quirk for, for uh, talking about the size of these markets yeah. where people think uh, pairs, and maybe they're used to trading on Polo or they're yeah. just used to trading on, on, on Coinbase, and you're thinking dollar Bitcoin, dollar ETH, Correct. dollar you know, whatever, um, or BTC, ETH, BTC, Zcash, uh, right, uh, for the crypto-only exchanges. But you, you, so, so how many currencies versus pairs? Because you guys are global. Yeah, so um, so we do upwards of forty uh, pairs or assets, cryptos. Okay, then thirteen different fiat currencies to be able to sell on, and then you allow the different permutations between the two. Sure. Right? So, so upwards of like five hundred yeah, or something, yeah. right? So so that's kind of where we want to get to. So we open up with ten or so. Uh, we want to be able to add more and more fiat currency, or or I guess. Uh, denominating pairs, so, you, so if you're in Europe and we have European banking and they want to settle on euros and they only want to trade that market, great, we can handle that for them. Mm -hmm. And then we would just go ahead and hedge the FX exposure. Um, but um, that, that's kind of the game plan. Are stable coins making your life easier in that regard? I think stable coins, it's been very, very interesting development of stable coins, right? You had Tether mm -hmm. and then that was kind of like, it still is kind of the majority um, in, in market cap. You've seen a number of other stable coins come out. So we rolled out with um, True USD and Tether um, on on Morea. We're going to add the others as well, mm -hmm. but um, but we're kind of seeing to see what kind of what kind of picks up. I'd imagine that XRP is going to be the primary base pair for you guys. 
Well, you so that, that's funny you ask. So, so we, we do have XRP on there as well. Um, the idea is is that ultimately when we get to the point where I think we want to get to later this year is to be able to trade anything across anything with us. So you mentioned Ripple. Well, show me a market in Ripple versus XLM. Right? You would think they're highly correlated, so people may be more incentivized to maybe go between the two. Mm -hmm. But or show me a market in in Ripple versus Litecoin. Mm -hmm. You can't get that anywhere else. But because we have the internal risk management tools to be able to manage both legs of those transactions, it's um, we're very comfortable trading those. And we do that OTC now, just not through Moran. You know, I, I I mentioned Ripple tongue in, tongue in cheek, obviously, but uh, but also as a segue to the question of uh, compliance and, and kind of risk taking in, in terms of which assets you're covering. You mentioned forty cryptos. Correct. The SEC has been very ambiguous and, and obviously come out with strong language that is vague in terms of who it might apply to. Um, the uh, the major exchanges more or less have consistent listing policies. Coinbase has put out their framework. I believe you know, Circle and Polo have been the same, how they think about Correct. assets to list and, and what would pass their, their sniff test for not being deemed a security. Correct. Um, does that differ with the OTC desks? Is, is there the ability to be a little bit faster and looser because all of your counterparties are gonna be accredited? Or do you guys still go through the same rigorous process for adding new pairs. I can't speak to the other desks. All I can speak to is kind of what we do, and we do an internal and external process, and we put all of these coins through. Um, there's, there's, there's two sides to this, right? There's, there's the legal and the compliance side, which obviously that's, it goes through that framework, um, how it does and things like that. But there's also the market side to it. It needs to make sense from a business standpoint, and, and exchanges as well, right? There needs to make sense because there's an expense to managing a new coin whether it's wallets or back office, middle office reconciliation of those ones. I mean, there's an expense to all this. There's expense to adding another exchange, right? Because you have to manage all that stuff. Um, and, and so even even on new coins. Um, so we definitely put it through a very rigorous um, examination of what we think is appropriate. And uh, and that's that's uh, that's kind of what we offer out there. How do you guys think about the uh, you know, build or buy for some of those services that you're responsible yeah. for? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's new there's new custodial yeah. um, solutions. Uh, there's obviously a lot of teams trying to work on uh, aggregating order books and, and you know, basically serving this you know, prime brokerage function. Um, what um, what's proprietary? Like uh, a lot of the trading uh, and execution. Uh, I'm I'm sure in market making that's that's your special sauce, yeah. right? And and you see that with Morea. Um, how about the custodial side, the fund administration, sure. right? Are, are there yeah. other kind of best in class uh, teams that, that you work with or, or that are people are generally aligned around in the industry? Yeah, it's a very good question. So Cumberland started in 2014. Um, uh, at that time, there weren't many, and you know, right, there weren't many service providers that weren't out of seed stage or out of just like an idea. And so we took it upon ourselves that we decided to build everything uh, kind of like a traditional principal trading firm mentality is like build everything in-house and, and, and don't use a commoditized service or offer. Yeah. Um, our group was no different. So that, that goes all the way down to the trading systems that we use that was built in-house. I mean, um, the, the wallet infrastructure that we had and things like that, you know, all that stuff was we tried to take the best ideas out there and incorporate them into the framework of our business. And that's been one of the big... Um, uh, I don't know if you pain points, but one of the friction points is is that there are service providers out there that um, 
uh, cater to the masses. And I think we're just a little bit unique and we will leverage um, certain things uh, to, to try to maximize opportunities. But at the same time, I feel like our business, the, the speed at which we want to operate and, uh, and capitalize on opportunities, mm -hmm. uh, such as you know different corporate actions out there with forks or things like that. That's, um, um, you really need to manage the process and not rely on, on someone else to do so. So that, that's maybe the, the uh, crypto specific side of the market. Yeah. Um, let's talk about legacy financial products. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody wants to know when the Bitcoin ETF is going to get approved. Mm -hmm. uh, it probably doesn't happen this year, that's my guess. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But um, what type of impact would that have on the OTC markets? Because um, you get this new uh, financial product that yep. all of a sudden the you know, an enormous number of institutions that might not touch the underlying, yes. uh, in any case, even if it's with someone like Fidelity or Facts, yep. they might just have no interest unless they can actually purchase these securitized products. Um, I do think that that's gonna have a, a pretty big long-term impact mm -hmm. once that gets approved. And to actually create those baskets of shares, you need what are called authorized participants right. um, to create baskets of these. And, and that's basically um, creating the synthetic security by um, trading the underlying and, and, and actually locking it in, in, a, in a trust. In some ETF cases, depends on the design. Um, that should be a boom for OTC desks and anyone that goes the authorized participant route. I, um, I, it, how, I, how big is that though? Or, or is it, eh, it, it depends on how, how many investors come into to actually create shares um, mm -hmm. or actually invest in the, the ETF or, or however many baskets. Um, but I would think it's, it, so the idea is, is that the investor that's getting uh, exposure to the ETF is getting exposure to the asset class or whatever coin it is, um, but they are managing or holding the coins. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you mentioned, in certain circumstances, the actual sponsor or whoever it is underneath is gonna have to actually go out there and aggregate that, right? So for GLD, right, they're gonna have to hold the actual physical gold bar somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that would, so people have, uh, uh, have been trying to bridge a gap like, okay, if an ETF launches, what does that actually mean for the spot market and things like that? Well, um, I think it's, it, it's very bullish for the market overall because of that factor. But in terms of uh, actually creating new shares, right? Yeah. Is, is, is that a, uh, would that just be kind of a negligible driver of growth for you guys? Uh, being able to trade around the NAV and, and actually becoming an authorized participant for one of those products? No, I mean, it, it, it would basically be um, somewhere we, where we would want to deploy our liquidity to mm -hmm. because they, um, uh, the hope is it be institutionalized, and so the flows would be even chunkier, and really what we specialize are in the, the, the much larger transactions. Look, for $1,000, $2,000, I mean, the exchange is gonna handle that, but really what people come to us for is the ability to be able to warehouse risk and, uh, and manage around that. Uh, from an operational standpoint, is that any different um Business-wise, right? Or is well, it I just, think, instead of instead of uh, you know facilitating bespoke orders from yeah. clients, now now you're actually trading around a product. Um, I think I think we we do that now, uh, let alone like the security aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of being able to trade around different types of events and opportunities, but related to an ETF, which is security, the AP would need to be a broker dealer, right? And so there are certain um, framework nuances that would need to get ironed out, but. Um, but I would, uh, uh, it's, it's just another trade, just making sure it goes through the appropriate channels to be able to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. one, one thing I know a couple of teams have been working on um, with respect to OTC price discovery, and just being yep. able to like, compare apples to apples, uh, what you see on exchanges versus what you right. see in you know, OTC. Mm -hmm. um, 
what is it going to take to actually get some type of aggregate uh, uh, volume or or you know spot pricing info yeah. from the major OTC desks? Because um, it it seems like it'd be a, a hell of a cap hurting exercise to actually get it done. I know a couple of people are starting to think about it, but is that, do you think that's an important uh, financial data product that we'll see at some I, point in the next year or two? Yeah, I think years ago people were very curious as to what the price discovery was in the street related to OTC pricing. So we actually um, are contributing to uh, Van X um, uh, uh, price called the MVIS or MVVIS, mm -hmm. and that gives you an idea of what the OTC price is on the street. Mm -hmm. And they aggregate across a number of other liquidity providers. And so I think it's a lot, uh, a lot less um, opaque than it was before. Mm -hmm. um, but but still, the the difference is is that you have people who have access to certain exchanges, and. I would imagine that not everybody in the market has access to all the same exchanges. If the if the playing field was all even, then it's much much easier to get to an equilibrium price or whatever the actual price is. But the reason you have discrepancies in price, even if you went to uh, a liquid provider, you know, here in New York versus like us or, or somewhere else, it's going to be slightly different because they need to be able to calculate in what their addressable market is, where their liquidity points are. And, um, and the pain points all between. So that's why that will, I think that will continue to exist because there is not standardization or uniformity across the exchanges themselves. And so, um, and, and price discovery is a symptom of that in my opinion. So maybe the, the, the last price discovery question that matters is the bottom end? Uh, I, I try not to be a, uh, a psychic on things. Um, and to be honest, if, uh, you know, no one's got a crystal ball. And so I would just say that, you know, do your homework. Um, but I, I, I certainly say um, I'm, you know, uh, I've been in space for a number of years. Like, with you, you know, I'm, we obviously believe in this asset class, and, and our whole thesis at Commerce is to help grow and um, and cultivate like an ecosystem around crypto assets. We we wouldn't have been we celebrated our um, uh, five year anniversary I think on Monday or Tuesday. I mean, I think for me, looking back, that, that was a huge milestone, right? It's it's uh, here we are. The, built this company over the last five, or this, this entity over the last five years, and um, I know five years is not that long, but in, in crypto years, I think it's 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 fairly 50, substantial, 50, 50%. especially when you operate 24-7. I mean, the day, the day never ends, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, as long as we're upwardly volatile, <laughs> uh, I guess that's maybe the, the best answer for, for yeah. an OTC trade. I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way, just from a, just from a um, uh, uh, economics perspective, right? You we're in this kind of trough period. We've kind of been in this trough period for a while. And to be honest, I think this is a very good period, and, and we were no different in when we uh, decided to look into Moran and things like that, in that this actually gives people an opportunity to start building sustainable, scalable solutions for the market. Because I think everybody would agree that on the run-up in, uh, in 2017, mm -hmm. that that was a pain point, right? And so this kind of, um, uh, this opportunity for people to take a step back and say, okay, what things do we need to focus on and actually plan out the next 12 months? I think that's a much more sustainable growth rate mm -hmm. than what you saw in like the boom and then the bust. And now we're in this trough period and you'll probably see some M&A happen in this trough period. But I think that's all signs of a very healthy um, growing ecosystem. Bobby, good to see you, man. Good to see you as well. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Until next time. Peace.